Well, I think that um, in many ways, I was talking about the revolution in Iran in 1979. Yeah. But more, I think, which I, and I was in the Carter administration, but a, at a lower level, but more as an experience of what happened when, when I actually was in a higher level oh. position, that in fact, uh, we made some mistakes because we were caught off guard. And the example that I give more than any other is what happened at Camp David um, in the summer of 2000. There are a lot of people who think that we went to Camp David because President Clinton wanted a legacy. That's not why we went there. It's because uh, Prime Minister Barack, who was, I think, a very bold leader with a lot of very interesting ideas, wanted to use the last months of President Clinton's presidency to try to get some resolution of the mm -hmm. um, Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, now, he was somebody with a lot of bold ideas, but he also uh, did not want to give us his bottom lines before we went. Uh, and uh, Chairman Arafat did not want to come. Uh, he absolutely did not want to come. I had to go uh, to the region to persuade him to come. Uh, and so the mood in the whole thing began in a very uh, black way, literally. Uh, and it was very hard. And the thing that came to me in that meeting, even though President Clinton actually spent a lot of time uh, reading uh, the Bible and the Quran and Torah and was, had been very knowledgeable about it all in the first place, and then perhaps by accident the lesson at an ecumenical chapel at Camp David was about the Temple of Solomon, uh, but from Kings. So it was very interesting that that happened. But what I think we didn't do, because of the way that uh, Prime Minister Barack had held his cards so close to his chest, was the following. Chairman Arafat was perfectly entitled to make decisions about the size of the Palestinian state. He was a duly elected leader, and this was a question about his territory. Where he couldn't make decisions, uh, even if he had been capable of them, was about the disposition of the holy places, because he was not the one that was solely in charge of them. Mm. Uh, this was something that the Saudis had responsibility for, and the Moroccans, and uh, the Egyptians, and various other um, Islamic leaders, and yet we were putting him in the spot of you make up your mind. Mm. And by the time we were able, we started calling them in order to help him get support, but by then we hadn't done the groundwork for it, and they said, what are you talking about? Um, and so I think that's a moment where I thought, we have really missed the boat mm. in understanding fully the pressures that this one person, whatever you think of Arafat, was under in order to make decisions about holy places. We did actually try to come up with a new concept, which is, you know, um, Jerusalem is an incredibly complicated place, and especially um, the, the, the mount, because there is the Muslim part on top, and the temple um, is supposed to be underneath, and the western wall, and everything's on top of everything else. And so the question is, who has sovereignty? And can you dig up and dig down and explore and rebuild? And we thought, okay, let's call, let's talk about divine sovereignty. The God owns mm -hmm. this, and then there could be access in different ways. Well, that didn't work. But that was really a time that I thought, 
okay, we didn't understand this. And it was that kind of thing, I think, that led me to write the book and then go back and look at what we had not understood during the Iranian Revolution. I found the concept, even raising the question, that those places could be under divine sovereignty, stunning. I thought, that is genuinely new thinking. I, I, I must say, that was, I had a question on that yeah. later, so let's skip. Um, one of the things that came across to me in reading this book, and as those of you who bought it and you read it, um, you love this country, and you love democracy. Comes, it's, it's on every page. And you argue that American exceptionalism is real, but that it is not in God's special providence for this country, that God treats the United States better than God treats any other country, but that its exceptionalism is in its democratic traditions and institutions. Is that a fair description? That is absolutely right, okay. yes. And so we have a responsibility to lead. Now, there's a practical, and I wrote about what I thought this book is trying to find a way to be both idealistic and pragmatic. But even this notion of exceptionalism, can it lead us into temptation? I was thinking about, you know, when the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness, the devil tempts Jesus with political power. And so even that, I think, pragmatic yet inspired and idealistic understanding of exceptionalism. Could it be bad for us? Is it bad for us as a nation because we are too persuaded? of our own innocence? It's a really terrific question, and I want to answer it. And can I read a piece? Please. Because I think Is it that one of this, the passages I underlined? You actually a, have yes. a note here. Um, <laughs> so I'd like right, to just, one. with your indulgence, Please. read this, and then answer more specifically, because it deals very much with what you've said. And I, and I really do love this country. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds hokey, but I'm a, uh, a naturalized American. Mm -hmm. I came here because communists had taken over Czechoslovakia, and I got not only to grow up as a free American, but I ended up with a pretty good job. So, uh, you know. Um, worked out, in other worked words. Worked out, yes, right. Worked out. Okay. So let me, if I might. Ours is a country of abundant resources, momentous accomplishments, and unique capabilities. We have a responsibility to lead, but as we fulfill that obligation, we should bear in mind the distinction pointed out by John Adams. Liberty, at least in the sense of free will, is God's gift, not ours. It is also morally neutral. It may be used for any purpose, whether good or ill. Democracy, by contrast, is a human creation. Its purpose is to see that liberty is directed into channels that respect the rights of all. As the world's most powerful democracy, America should help others who desire help to establish and strengthen free institutions. But in so doing, we should remember that promoting democracy is a policy, not a mission. And policies must be tested on the hard ground of diplomacy, practical politics, and respect for international norms. Our cause will not be helped if we're so sure of our rightness 
that we forget our propensity as humans to make mistakes. Though America may be exceptional, we cannot demand that exceptions be made for us. Mm -hmm. We are not above the law, nor do we have a divine calling to spread democracy any more than we have a national mission to spread Christianity. We have, in short, the right to ask, but never to insist or blithely assume that God bless America. Mm. So I think that there is something um, And there is something very seductive about the thing when you think you are an exceptional mm -hmm. country. And I do think we are an exceptional country. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, and also a very powerful country. But I think we need to figure out how to use that exceptional power, uh, not in order to dominate, but to present um, a moral foreign policy and not to be seduced by the power that that brings. I have to, this sounds very odd, but it's, it is unbelievable to be in a position where you actually have some say about how the power of the United States yeah. is dispensed. Uh, and to sit behind a sign that says United States mm -hmm. and to make statements on behalf of this country. And you have a sense of incredible power because when the U.S. speaks, everybody listens. There's just no question about that. And it's almost as if you were riding a really wild horse. You have to control it. There is nobody else to control the United States, right. and therefore we have to exercise self-control. And that's what I think is missing at this point, is that we are filled with our sense of exceptionalism and are not exercising self-control and therefore diminishing our exceptionalism. Mm. Yeah. I agree with you. I use the word pragmatism to describe this book and idealism. And I did so after thought about it a lot when you sent me the manuscript. Because it seems to me you were trained in the real politic uh, uh, philosophy of foreign affairs. And you are looking with a critical eye on the kind of meta-ethical, ideological approaches to foreign policy of this administration and trying to find something else. And you draw this comparison to Vietnam, or you cite this comparison to Vietnam. It is startling how criticisms heard during the Vietnam era have a parallel in those uttered more recently about a different type of war, the invasion of Iraq by the United States. You quote, Hans Morgenthau, quote, while normally foreign and military policy is based upon intelligence, that is the objective assessment of the facts, the process is here reversed. A new policy has been decided upon and intelligence must provide the facts. Am I correct in thinking that you are through this book trying to find a new way, a new philosophy even, or contribute to the construction of a guiding philosophy for foreign affairs in these times? Well, I'm trying uh, in the following way. First of all, this discussion always about uh, a division between realpolitik, realists, and idealists, I've actually thought was always artificial. Uh, 
mainly because I can't figure out what I am. Um, and so I have called myself a realistic idealist or an idealistic realist because the truth is that without idealism, um, a lot of policies have no traction. And without realism, you really uh, can't operate within the real world. So the two uh, go together very much. Um, and what I'm trying to do here is to figure out whether there are uh, aspects of our faith, everybody's faith, that in fact can be used for solving problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there is a great deal of idealism and vision, depending upon how you worship your God. But is there a way uh, that certain aspects can be put to practical use in order to solve problems? So I am advising more and more, first of all, that our diplomats have to understand uh, the religious basis of the countries where they are posted, mm -hmm. in addition to the history and language and culture, because culture and religion are two different things. Uh, I also think that the Secretary of State needs to have religious advisors. Uh, the Secretary of State can't know everything, uh, and there are uh, economic advisors and arms control advisors and environmental advisors, and so there should be religious advisors. And we should use religious leaders uh, as part of our negotiating process, not necessarily at the same table, mm -hmm. but as resources and as validators. I actually think that people such as you uh, should be a part of conflict resolution uh, in terms of understanding how to break down a problem to its component parts to see whether they are religiously sensitive to the issues at hand. So I have some very practical thoughts mm -hmm. about how to do that. And I actually think that using religious ideas is a realistic foreign policy. Mm, interesting. I hope that's helpful. When I read your earlier book, Madam Secretary, um, your own personal history is also a religious history, somewhat a religious history of the 20th century. Do you find yourself, especially since the insight about your own personal history, on a religious journey? Well, I do, because, mm -hmm. and also I think that it uh, goes to a very basic conclusion that I reach in my book, which is that group identification is not important and individual identification is in respect for the individual, mm -hmm. and I'll explain that. I was raised a Roman Catholic. I married an Episcopalian and found out I was Jewish. Uh, so that's <laughs> what I meant, Madeline. Gives me uh, uh, at least the ability to to think that I could write this mm -hmm. book. But what I find interesting, having said that, is that but for choices made, I might have been going to a synagogue instead of a church. The other part that I think defies the group label is, as I said, my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat. Uh, and he loved serving his country, but the communists took over in 1948. We came to the United States, and he asked for political asylum. And I became an American, and I loved being an American, but for that set of facts, I might have ended up teaching history at Charles University in Prague. So I think the group labels don't work, and therefore the individual aspect uh, does, for me, in all the religions and philosophies, 
there is a central point about the importance of the individual. There are a lot of people who say it's a Western concept. Mm. It isn't just a Western concept. It's, it's a universal concept. So that is. Now, my own religious journey is um, a complicated one because it's very hard. I have to say, frankly, I had a hard enough time uh, changing from being a Catholic to being an Episcopalian. Um, because I was a very serious Catholic. I thought I should be a priest, which really goes to show you that uh, uh, I wasn't quite uh, knowledgeable. Uh, and, uh, but Works for me. Uh, I had very uh, concrete and real beliefs in my vision of the Virgin Mary, and so it was hard for me to shift. Uh, and it's certainly, uh, I am very glad to have found out about my Jewish background uh, and consider it a, a very enriching experience, but I find it hard, nor do I, and I find it unnecessary to unlearn what I learned. Mm -hmm. And so what I have done is kind of combined my various thoughts. I know I believe in God, and I have found it very interesting and that's why this book has been such a learning experience, is to actually look for the common threads uh, in all these religions, probably to justify my own belief, that's mm -hmm. one part, and the other for, for, for more practical reasons, which is to solve problems. So it has been a, a learning experience for me. The other reason I asked that question was specifically to refute Dr. Stanley Hauerwas yeah. of Duke, Divinity School, who told you you had no business writing or speaking about religion. And on behalf of seminary professors everywhere, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, he made an additional point. He actually said, I think not fully understanding the full panoply of my life, that there could a Christian, a real Christian, could not be Secretary of State because it meant that um, we, I would be, a real Christian would never use force. Right. Uh, which I, I disagree with completely. Uh, I happen to be somebody who believes in peace, uh, but I'm not a pacifist. And so I have found very interesting, obviously, rereading St. Augustine and the theory of just war. Mm -hmm. uh, and because this became a real issue when you're a policymaker, and which is different than theorizing about it, and that is that what do you do if you see genuinely terrible things taking place, such as the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans, which mm -hmm. is what we were dealing with, and you do represent the most powerful country in the world with a very uh, brilliant military force, do you not decide that you will use that force in a limited way on behalf of a just cause in order to stop suffering by other people. Uh, and so I think that's where uh, I parted company. And I do part, as much as I admire civil disobedience, uh, it's very hard when you represent the United States and are looking at how to solve the problems of people mm -hmm. being ethnically cleansed to decide you won't use force. Sure. Or, in fact, I think we would have all thought that President Bush uh, had made a mistake if after 9-11 he had turned the other cheek. You cite Augustine on the defense of the vulnerable yeah. other. Yeah. You and I were together at a conference at Georgetown uh, that you co-hosted with Republican Senator uh, Brownback of Kansas. 
And you mention the conference in the book as an example of a way that people from a broad range of religious moral commitments can come together uh, on issues that are very important. And you talk about three. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about those three, to talk as happened at the conference, which I found very helpful, about ways in which those unlikely collaborations are working and where they are not working or not yet working, and what do you hope for those collaborations in the future, one being religious liberty, the other global poverty, and the third being genocide? Yeah. Um, I think that that whole conference came uh, out, not only out of uh, writing this book, because mm -hmm. I'd gone up to see Senator Brownback about some of his ideas. As I said, I was trying to interview uh, leaders about their religious beliefs. But in the process of it, we started talking about how we could cooperate. And that came out of the fact that, I presume this is evident in Chicago, but Washington is a horrible place at the mm. moment. Um, <laughs> I have been in politics for a very long time. I've lived in Washington since 1968. Uh, I have worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Muskie, and I worked in the White House for President Carter and President Clinton. I have um, advised every losing Democratic presidential candidate. <laughs> um, uh, and I have, loved, <laughs> I have loved politics. But at this stage, I think Washington is an awful place. It is toxic. Uh, you can barely have a civilized discussion with somebody of the opposing party. Uh, and so I think uh, uh, there's gridlock in mm -hmm. every single way. The system isn't working, checks and balances. And so um, both Senator Brownback and I thought, well, perhaps there are some issues on, on which we can work together. And so we had this conference. Uh, and we began to explore those issues. So genocide is... Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I think, the prime example in this. And the rally that took place in Washington maybe three Sundays ago now, where you had right and left, uh, Christian, Muslim, and Jew, black and white, all kinds of ethnic groups, uh, trying to uh, make clear to President Bush that we needed to be more supportive of getting change in Darfur to stop genocide, I think is a perfect example mm -hmm. of that. We also talked about trafficking in people. That was another one of the issues that uh, we thought right and left could work on together. It's very interesting because it's an issue that began while I was Secretary of State, but then uh, was a piece of legislation passed by a very uh, conservative Republican uh, House. So that is, is another one of those issues. Clearly, religious tolerance, I think, mm -hmm. is an issue helping refugees, poverty, those are the kinds of issues where right and left can work together. What I have found interesting uh, is that uh, I was visited while I was secretary on an issue of Sudan uh, by a group of children from a Christian high school when the issue was north-south mm. uh, Sudan, the north being uh, under Sharia law and the south more Christian. And they knew a great deal about it and they wanted to raise money and participate. So the far right is interested in humanitarian issues, mm -hmm. and the left clearly is. 
And I think that there is a way to work together in order to try to break this gridlock and find what we have in common. What is interesting in the history of the United States is the missionary movement early on, they were the most internationalist. Mm -hmm. uh, people that went to various places, learned the languages, knew more about the culture, and came back and told other Americans, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on on the outside. So I am trying to figure out a way that liberals uh, can see cooperating with uh, some of the Christian right and vice versa. But there's some issues we will not agree on. You asked about that. Uh, I just had a very uh, difficult interview with a Christian right radio station, and people were yelling at me. And uh, we will not be able to agree on issues of reproductive rights. Uh, I doubt we will be able to agree on issues on stem cell or on intelligence, intelligent design, and some very, there are issues we will not agree on. Uh, but I do think that there are some that we should look for that we could agree on as part of this theme of trying to find some common ground. I want to talk about torture. You quote the Vatican's foreign minister about the torture at Abu Ghraib and other detention facilities, and the Vatican foreign minister described that as an offense against God. What could and should the United States do today to try to deal with the real damage to America's leadership role in the world that our evidence of torture has caused? What should we do? Well, I, I, to put this into a larger context, and that has to do with the war in Iraq generally, I was somebody who said that the war was a war of choice, not of necessity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I had said all the same things about Saddam Hussein that President Bush had said, and I actually said them for longer, for eight years, but I did not see any reason to go to war. There was not an imminent threat. We had him in a box. Uh, and besides, the people that had hit uh, our Twin Towers came from Afghanistan. They had nothing to do with Iraq. Um, and so this war has had many unintended consequences. Uh, and one of them is definitely the very serious damage to America's reputation as a moral country and the exceptionalism that we were mm -hmm. talking about. And Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay uh, have been uh, just the hallmarks of the loss of our good reputation. And the effect of it is very serious because while I think that we are not a perfect country, uh, we have in the past played a very important role within the international system of holding other countries to a standard, of taking cases to the Human Rights Commission and saying the Chinese are torturing people or uh, what is happening in Zimbabwe is unacceptable mm -hmm. and a series of things like that. We are now incapable of doing that. In fact, we're not even members of the commission anymore um, because people say, what are you talking about? You guys are the ones that actually have been torturing people and holding people without due process. And so we have undermined our ability to try to create a set of international norms. I don't know how, I mean, I know one way we can get out of it, but it'll take another two years. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, uh, uh, um, but I think that the real problem here is 
<laughs> that there really has been no accountability. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the world knows that, that a few lower level uh, military people, who obviously should have known better, uh, have been punished kind of minimally, actually, and that the people who um, ordered this in some form or another just keep saying the same thing uh, and denying the fact that this, uh, uh, that they had anything to do with it. So accountability, mm -hmm. I think, is, that would help a lot. Um, but the question, and I think people have to be honest with themselves about torture. Uh, I think that we would all like to say that we are totally opposed to torture. But if you look at a very popular program, 24, for instance, mm -hmm. the hero tortures people in order to get information out of them to save America. And I think it's a very, I think we have to be opposed to torture. It is totally contrary, at least to the way that um, I think most of us see things. But it's a difficult issue, especially when you can persuade yourself that whatever it is you're doing is saving larger numbers of people, which means that you do have to understand what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, and what the uh, unintended consequences are of what you've done. But it has damaged us terribly. Mm. Uh, and I'm very interested to see that the Supreme Court is, is trying in some ways to say that what's happening at Guantanamo Bay is wrong that numbers of leaders that are coming here, like the German chancellor and various people, uh, even those who are trying to kind of make friends with this administration are saying, close Guantanamo Bay. I think there is some movement to do that, but it's really the damage has been very, very serious. Will we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission? We may, uh, but to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, requires an initial step, which is to recognize that what you've done is the wrong thing. Yes, the truth uh, part. And, yes. <laughs> and I think that one of the hardest parts, I think, about being in a leadership position is to admit you've made mistakes. Mm. And I must say, uh, President Clinton, really, we made a terrible mistake on Rwanda. There's just no question about that. Uh, and President Clinton has said, he apologized, he said we made a terrible mistake. Um, I studied the issue very carefully, and a lot of facts that have come out now were not evident at the time, and, uh, and I think that we probably couldn't have gotten to Rwanda on time to stop anything realistically, but I wish we'd tried, uh, and I wish we'd understood it better, but President Clinton said that. Mm. Has anybody anywhere said that we've made real mistakes? There have been you know, Secretary Rice say there have been tactical errors, and, and Secretary Rumsfeld contradicts her on that. And, um, <laughs> and so there has not really been an assumption uh, of, of responsibility for something that has gone terribly wrong. And what I say in the book is that I think, and I hope I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong about this, that uh, Iraq will go down in history as the worst foreign policy disaster in American history, worse than Vietnam, not in terms of the numbers of people that are dead, Americans and mm -hmm. Vietnamese, but in terms of its long-term effects. I don't want to put down the importance of Southeast Asia versus the importance of the Middle East, but the, the effect of the total um, chaos created in Iraq the rising influence of Iran, 
the difficulty of resolving a number of issues in the Middle East, uh, I think, is a very, very destabilizing situation that did not need to happen. What haven't I... What haven't I asked you that you would like these people to know about this book that you've written and this journey that you're taking to talk to people well, about? Well, the thing that, um, I, again, I think, in honesty, I have to say is I, one of my hypotheses as I went into writing these book, this book was that George Bush was an anomaly in American history in terms of his <laughs> very close relationship with God. Uh, and I went back and I, you know, we all took American history at various stages and, uh, and I certainly took my learning of American history very seriously. I had to pass the citizenship test. Uh, but I also learned my history in Colorado, which meant that I was on the side of the cowboys. And um, so, uh, and I understood Manifest Destiny. What I found interesting in going through American history with a different prism is that we are indeed a very religious country, founded by people who came here to uh, get away from persecution and separation of church and state, which, by the way, originally was more to keep the state out of the church rather than the other way around. Uh, and that Manifest Destiny did have a religious basis, uh, even though it meant that the civilization that was here was obliterated. Uh, and that President McKinley, for instance, said that he had a duty to Christianize the Philippines. Um, and even my big hero, Woodrow Wilson, there was this sense of messianism about what they were doing. Um, so in that regard, uh, every American president has invoked God in some form or another. President Kennedy, President Roosevelt, every one of them has. The poem by Robert Frost that never was read basically talked about the relationship between God and this country. So that's, that's not new. Uh, so in that way, George Bush is not an anomaly, but he is in the following way, which is the certainty with which he talks about his relationship with God. Uh, I have a quote in the book that says, God wants me to be president. Uh, and that he fully believes that God is on our side, in contrast to President Lincoln, who said we need to be on God's side. And what he has done as a result of his certitude mm -hmm. is, one, make religion American policy rather than be his faith, and the second is made it, in terms of pure policy terms, a much more difficult task for countries to be with us. Mm. And to explain that, I, I say it this way. After 9-11, uh, the choice, as was presented, was you are either for the people who fly airplanes into buildings and kill innocent people, or you're with us. Therefore, the with us was a very large group. But when, as a result of the president's determination of good and evil and the axis of evil and various mm -hmm. evildoer statements that he made, um, <laughs> what happened was that he changed the choice. Uh, the choice was you are either with us, which means that you agree with our definitions of evil, that you are for the war in Iraq, you are for Guantanamo, for Abu Ghraib, for the extension of American military power, 
versus other people. So that meant that the number of countries and supporters narrowed. And what happened then, I think, is this, if you are so sure that you are right and that you know the absolute truth, um, then when plan A doesn't work, you don't have plan B. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a theme that I try to follow in the book. And I did interview two very religious presidents, President Carter and President Clinton. And especially President Clinton, I think, was very articulate in explaining the fact that you don't know the absolute truth. There may be absolute truth, and there is. And then he quoted the Apostle Paul in, term, in Corinthians saying, I see through a glass darkly, meaning I don't know everything right now. And that kind of doubt is what makes you analyze things, question things, get different opinions, and not be so certain that your way or the highway. So I think that that's something, a theme that, that I wanted to point out in the book. Thank you. Well, at some point at the end of history, we will find out what God has to say about right. it. Yes. Um, now it's up to you. And um, I see a mic there um, on a stand uh, in, the, in the aisle. So if uh, people who have questions would like to come forward and ask Madam Secretary, uh, we'll engage in the audience dialogue part. You know, I found that you were... I found that you referred to... Not yet. We can't, I can't hardly hear you. I found that, I found that you referred to... What we're doing is like these subjects have rights or something. When my uncle went through North Africa, up Italy and Germany, he didn't take any lawyers with him. When my father went in the South Pacific, they didn't take any lawyers. That's not what we're doing. We're not, we're not engaged in a criminal idea. We were attacked. This is a war. It's not, we're not trying to convict somebody. We don't need proof. You can't have proof. We didn't... Did the soldiers we shot in Germany, when we were there, were, did we try and find each one of them guilty and then shoot them? No. You don't do that in a war. We're fighting a war. We're not prosecuting criminals. I, There's I, no way you can win this. I think the question that I have, I agree with you that we have to deal with the people who killed our people. but. As a policymaker, you have to figure out whether what you're doing is creating more enemies rather than less. And, and even Secretary Rumsfeld has said uh, that there's no metric for trying to figure out whether we have actually getting more terrorists than are being created. And so I think one has to be practical uh, in terms of whether in fighting those who have killed our people, whether we are taking the best methods. Well, I mean, you're you. fighting Could the Wahhabis and the other people. You have to go after them. You can't, you have to do it country by country, just like we did in World War II. We started in Morocco, we fought our way across, and we fought up. And that's what we're doing now and what we're going to have to do. We can't sit there and say, well, we want to pick out this person and that person. You have to do them all. And so we're going to exterminate all the we're Wahhabis? We're not going to exterminate them all, but we're going to have to, you have to defeat them. Yes, and you know but how? But exterminate is different. You know how? With ideas. We have to win in the battle yeah, of yeah. ideas. You'll never do it. Good work, Adam.
Hi, good evening, Secretary Albright. Um, I have a question about the current situation in Darfur, Sudan, and you had expressed in both your memoir and tonight about that the biggest mistake, or one of the biggest mistakes you feel the Clinton administration made was um, the inaction, or not as fast action, on Rwanda genocide. And I was wondering, in light of what is happening in Darfur, what do you think the American uh, or the Bush administration's role is? Well, I think that, first of all, we've waited a very long time, uh, which is terrible because uh, Rwanda, as far as I'm concerned, I describe as volcanic genocide. Uh, it erupted after the president of Rwanda's airplane was shot down, which is why I say that even if we had gotten our act together, I doubt we could have gotten there on time. I just wish we really had tried. In Darfur, we are watching rolling genocide. It's been going on for three and a half years, and not enough has been done. I do think now President Bush has begun to move to release more funds in order to give support to the African Union and then ultimately to a UN peacekeeping force. The question that comes up, and I have now spent a lot of time on it, is whether the US should send troops in or whether NATO should send troops in. Uh, and the argument against it is that um, NATO is, primary, is in, to a great extent composed of countries that are former colonial powers. Uh, and then gives excuse to those who say uh, that it's the white people coming in again. And therefore, uh, I think that the thing that needs to happen is the US uh, and NATO need to give more and more logistical support to uh, a UN peacekeeping operation composed of uh, a variety of countries from the developing world, uh, and that we should be providing supplies, communications, uh, logistical support uh, in order to strengthen and get as rapidly as possible a UN peacekeeping force. Uh, I have to say that I kind of have been saying that the US should have troops in there, but I'm beginning to see that there really is a problem with that in terms of the perception, especially after what we've been doing in Iraq, because we look as if we're trying to occupy, and what needs to happen is that we need to use some of uh, our um, resources to get others to be able to go in there. Uh, and then get um, what has to happen most of all at the moment is the US needs to use its influence with others to get the government in Khartoum to accept a UN peacekeeping operation. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to see Thank you here you. tonight. I have two questions that are related to one another. When talking about George Bush, I wonder if it's not so much that the president, and this is a unique president, but he represents a trend in American culture where we're seeing a rise of religious views and a rise of the American people going to church and being involved in religious organizations. If we think that's true, how do we perceive the left and how should the left be dealing with religion when there are so many people who do not even want to talk about religion at all? And I think it's going to create a further chasm between those who are going to talk about religion and the left who is just going to ignore it? Well, first of all, I think um, we have to come, I don't happen to think that everybody on the left is an atheist. Um, and uh, I, that is a part that is very important because the assumption is made that people on the left do not believe in God and do not understand a lot of the values that come from believing in God. Uh, I think that we need to dispel that or we will not be in a very good position. I would put 
<laughs> Dr. Thistle waited into Hello. the left. Yes. yes. Uh, and I think yeah. that's a point that you've been making, mm -hmm. and, and I think that, that we need to get away from that kind of a divide. Where I think we, and we also need to understand this, is that this is a religious country, and that uh, we have to be tolerant of those who uh, wish to be in very um, uh, religious communities, and, but at the same time, try to explain a lot of what the left believes in, in terms that are understandable uh, in religious terms to those on the other side. Mm. I mean, I think you're the one, you know, who has been saying uh, so much of social justice comes from religious terminology. Mm. I just think we put ourselves, if I may say so, in the Democratic Party in a really bad position if we act as if uh, talking about God is a bad thing. Uh, that we have to recognize that religion does play a very large role in people's lives, and that we need to talk about separation of church and state, which is basic to our country, but that you can't separate people from their faith. And therefore, we ought to practice what I think the left is so good at, is tolerance of diversity. Secretary Albright, thank you very much for being here. Um, I just want to pick up the point you made earlier about being a pacifist, or, sorry, about not being a pacifist, and that you thought George Bush was correct not to turn the other cheek. And I was wondering what you would have advised him to do. On Afghanistan? On Iraq. On Iraq. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think that um, Afghanistan and Iraq really go together, which is what I meant in turning the other cheek. Uh, if after uh, we had been attacked on 9-11, uh, the president had turned the other, said, I'm turning the other cheek, I think most Americans would have revolted uh, because we were attacked. Uh, and I think that it was appropriate to take the action that he did. Uh, where I thought it was inappropriate was to shift attention from Afghanistan to Iraq. Uh, and what I would have advised there is, um, I have said, and I, I said a little while ago, I think Saddam Hussein was all the things that President Bush said he was. Uh, he invaded another country, he trashed it, he took prisoners, he tortured his own people, he gassed a lot of them, uh, all those things. Uh, but when you're involved in decision making, you have to have priorities. And not finishing the job in Afghanistan, uh, where now we see a resurgence of some of the warlords and problems with Taliban, and as much as I admire President Karzai, he is really the mayor of Kabul. He does not have total control over the country. Uh, and so, I, and Osama bin Laden uh, is nowhere to be found. And so, that's where I'm troubled, and I thought that as horrible as Saddam Hussein was, he was not an imminent threat. Uh, he was under tight sanctions. Uh, we were monitoring the no-fly zones. Uh, and I did, I have to say this, I did believe he had weapons of mass destruction by deduction because the inspectors left in 1998 and not all the weapons had been accounted for. But I did not think they were an imminent threat. And on a couple of times that I was briefed on what the post-invasion plans were going to be, it was evident they had no plan. They were operating on the basis of hope 
that we would be seen as liberators, and so they had no timeline. So my advice to President Bush would have been, finish Afghanistan, try to put smart sanctions on Iraq, and keep your eye on the ball. That would have been my advice. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I'd also like to thank you for coming here today, but even more so, I'd like to thank you for having the courage and the conviction to write on a topic of this kind. It's very important that people speak. Uh, and my question, I, I suppose I have two very closely related questions. If I could give them both and you could give one answer. Um, I, I'm interested in knowing uh, if Islam operates by a Socratic model, if who the wise men or the opinion leaders within Islam are, whether they're tolerant in what you think a young man of my age could do to help in the Middle East, uh, try to find some peace. Uh, I think I have had to learn a lot about Islam myself. Uh, and this actually started when I was in office. Uh, and as I went through notes uh, to write my memoirs, I found various uh, meetings where I sat and in the margins it would say, learn more about Islam. <laughs> uh, and we started that in a very consistent way. Uh, I began, we, some of what's in the book is really almost a primer on Islam, which comes out partially of a, a booklet that we were beginning to put out about um, uh, what Islam was about. And then we started having iftar dinners. I was the first person to do that uh, at, in, after days of fast to bring uh, a variety of Muslim Americans in to talk. Uh, we started putting Muslim holidays on the calendar. Uh, and we began a process, I think, of getting ourselves fully acquainted with Islam. I have found uh, in my education of myself um, some very interesting Islamic teachers. and. One of them is a man that also went over my manuscript, Imam Faisal, uh, who is Kuwaiti-born, an American who is, uh, uh, works in New Jersey and New York. We were together on a task force um, that the Council on Foreign Relations did. And I think that there are, or two nights ago I was up in Dearborn uh, and talking with the Imam there of the largest American mosque. And I think that there are many imams who are themselves looking for a way uh, to, I, I, I apologize if I don't use the right term, but to kind of update uh, what many Muslims think. There used to be a, 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 um, uh, a tradition within Islam called ijtihad, which is a reasoning process to try to explain what is going on. The Quran is, in fact, viewed as the word of God uh, as given to Muhammad. Uh, but there is this reasoning process. And I think that we should, it is not up to non-Muslims to tell Muslims how to reinterpret themselves. That's the part which I think is a mistake. Nor should anybody else tell Christians how to update themselves or Jews how to, I mean, that is something that has to come from within. And I think that that is, should be encouraged and that those, and, and Islam is actually a pretty democratic religion. Uh, there is not really a hierarchy within it. And so I hope that various imams uh, will be in the position to do the reinterpreting. 
and so that we don't, frankly, get a comment like the first one, uh, which makes it sound as if every Muslim is a terrorist, uh, and that uh, we are identifying uh, Islam with terrorism, just as if we thought that every Christian was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So, I think, it, uh, and I think what a young person should do is be part of this educational process. I think it's so essential. Ultimately, it comes down to education. Uh, and it's education within the system and uh, trying to get new textbooks into the Muslim schools and basically an educational process. Well said. Thank you, Thank Ms. You. Albright. Thanks. Hello, uh, dear Madam Secretary, Madeline Albright. Um, as a citizen of Croatia, I really value because you brought a lot, we really value you for your peace efforts in my nation and the whole region. And I have two questions that are quite closely related. On 11th of March, Slobodan Milosevic died, and does, did that recall any memories or like confront times from when you had to con counterfeit Mr. Milosevic? And now on the 20th of May, it's very likely Montenegro will depart the Union of Serbia and Montenegro. And there are many talks about Kosovo's independence. Do you think now without Milosevic, there's a chance of some kind of destabilization in the region or any threat for the region or Serbia due to a possible uh, dependence of those two ethnic groups? Um, it's interesting. You know, I'm often asked about who was the leader that I met with that I thought was the worst of all. Uh, and I met with a few, but uh, I think Milosevic pretty much is right at the top because he actually used religion in a way uh, to um, uh, perpetuate a nationalist myth and to use it as a way to ethnically cleanse people that did not believe the same thing that he did. Um, and I'm very proud of the way that the international community went about dealing with Milosevic. You know, I took a lot of votes in the Security Council, but establishing the War Crimes Tribunal, I think, was a really, truly important one because it was a way to, um, and nobody thought it would work, but it was a way to assign individual guilt and expunge collective guilt because I don't think all the Serbs were responsible for what happened in Croatia and Bosnia um, and uh, in Kosovo. So um, I think it was a good process. I have to say that it is unfortunate that it ended with Milosevic the way it did uh, because it would have been good to see real justice meted out. Uh, but since I do believe in God, it will happen. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of a process, um, uh, I think it's, it's most unfortunate that it was not able to end. Um, and I, but I think that the War Crimes Tribunal does do its job, and I'm glad it was established, and it's a model uh, for um, some of the war crimes uh, and crimes against humanity that were committed in Rwanda, and to some extent it's being used uh, with the creation of the International Criminal Court, and even some in terms of Saddam Hussein's trial. So I think that was a useful thing. Um, I do believe that um, it is very important for the process in the Balkans to continue. You can't keep people together against their will. I would have wished, ultimately, that the way that the Balkans uh, would organize itself is that it would be more important 
about what was happening in Brussels than what was happening in Belgrade. Uh, that there would be a sense that various component parts of the former Yugoslavia would understand that there is a need to have economic cooperation and some sense of unity because microstates are very hard to sustain. Uh, but I, I think ultimately that uh, the Serbs need to recognize that um, Kosovo is going to become independent and that Montenegro will probably become independent. Uh, but these are very small countries. They would be very small countries and not economically viable. And so some th it's not like Croatia. Croatia is a big country. Uh, and uh, even Croatia finds it very important to be a part of the European Union. So I think that's the direction it has to move in. But it is, to me, the issue of the dissolution of Yugoslavia is an example of revenge based on religion to a great extent that was the beginning of, this, of some of this story uh, and is something, that's why I think we dealt with it the way we did. Hi, Madam Secretary, it's a pleasure to have you here. I look forward to uh, reading your book. I'm actually very interested in the question of the pragmatic use of religious ideas and am writing my dissertation on the use of religious arguments in political discourse. My question is, do you see any limits on the pragmatic use of religious ideas? Is there a distinction between foreign and domestic policy concerns? You mentioned several things, um, stem cell research, reproductive rights, that you see it as impossible for us to agree on. And is this something that has to be decided on an ad hoc basis when civil discourse breaks down and we realize that the engagement of religious ideas on a particular subject in a particular situation is just not being useful, is not helping resolve the situation, then we know that it's the usefulness of religious ideas has exhausted itself in that situation. And could we perhaps, once we cultivate a culture of being able to engage one another on our religious ideas and understandings that maybe these, these subjects could open up again one day and we could find common ground at some future point. This is exactly the kind of question that makes me realize that uh, the book tour is a learning experience. Mm -hmm. I, I really, uh, thank you for asking that and, and uh, I have to think a little bit more in answering it. I, I think that this is that kind of issue uh, the, on the domestic scene, to a great extent, in this country, then does depend on issues of separation of church and state, and also then who, in fact, controls the state, which is why when we have elections, uh, despite the fact that often these are very personal issues and some people think should never be a part of political discussion, they have been politicized. And so people, as they vote, have a are part of a discussion as to whether they think, let's say, talk about stem cell research, for instance, uh, that they elect people who actually think that NIH and others should be doing research on it. Or, and one of the things that, you know, those of us that are in politics kept saying, it's about the Supreme Court. Remember, it's about the Supreme Court. Uh, which a lot of people seem to have forgotten because for a very long time now we're going to have a court that looks as though it has a view that is more reflective of one aspect of this question than the other. 
But I do think ultimately some of these do have to be decided on an ad hoc basis and it becomes a political basis. The thing I still think though needs to happen in both domestic and foreign policy and as hopeless as it may sound at some times is to try to find common language and decide that perhaps, not on the particular issues you're talking about, but on others, that there is a reaction by religious people to a certain amount of vulgarity in the way that modernization has been translated. Uh, that there's a revulsion against things that happened in the 60s and that somebody in Kansas actually has the same reaction to something as somebody in Karachi. Uh, to seeing disgusting things on television. So I think there is some carryover. But on some of the domestic issues, they become very political and they are then ad hoc. But it's a really good question and um, clearly you're going to address this in your thesis and I will look at it. But it's, <laughs> a, it's an example, I think, of, of yeah. the issues that it raises. I think the verdict's in on that. Yeah. Uh, hi, Madam Secretary. I was wondering, uh, as America's chief diplomat, what was your experience as not only a woman, but as a woman of Jewish descent, specifically with Islamic relations? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, uh, it's interesting because there were a lot of questions as to whether a woman could be Secretary of State at all. Uh, and then the issues about when it came out that I, or I discovered and it came out that I was Jewish, there was that question. As it turned out, it had no effect at all. Uh, I represented the United States. It did help. I arrived in a very large plane that said United <laughs> States of America. Um, but mostly what happened was that, um, and one of the interesting things that happened, there was a certain stage where um, one of, when the discussion as to whether I'd be Secretary of State or not was out there, uh, this was before the, the Jewish question, as I call it, um, the... Um, Arab ambassadors at the UN who knew me kind of got together and issued a statement about the fact that they had no problems working with me. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and, and in fact, when I went to my first uh, meeting with uh, Arab ambassadors, I said something like, you, I thank you very much for the really good meeting that we've had and your respect, and et cetera. You may notice that I'm not dressed exactly the way my predecessors were but next time we'll talk about women's rights. And <laughs> what happened was that they actually made a big point of talking in various meetings about women and introducing me to their daughters and their wives. So I found that very interesting. What is more uh, intriguing is I actually had more problems with the men in our own government. Um, <laughs> and the reason for that is not that they were all male chauvinist pigs, but that, in fact, they had known me too long. They had known me through my uh, coming of age, uh, professionally, that is to say. I had uh, been a carpool mother. Uh, I had served on a lot of boards. I knew their wives. Uh, I had been a staffer. I had made a lot of coffee. Uh, Xeroxed, uh, and I had worked in a lot of positions, and all of a sudden I was Secretary of State. How did Madeline get to be Secretary of State? <laughs> um, and so I found that a very interesting thing, that it was the question of just having seen me through all these positions, uh, that that was the question, but I truly did not have problems 
uh, with the foreign leaders. Uh, and I actually am prepared to say that a woman Secretary of State can get a, many things done that a man cannot. Uh, and that the personal relationships that are established, a kind of attempt to build consensus, and, and whatever I might think about some aspects of Dr. Rice, I think she is doing a very good job in terms of building relationships. Um, and the truth is, my own daughters say this to me, you know, Mom, after you did the job, people are not asking whether a woman can be Secretary of State. So. Uh, Secretary Albright, welcome to Chicago. I have the following question. You have mentioned about uh, a role, a potential role for religious advisors uh, in political life or as, I mean, in the life of, of the government. Have you sensed that uh, this concept is, um, is embraced either by some people in the current administration or in the people in the future administrations? And a related question, have you seen any um, embracement of this concept by people in other governments, in foreign governments, on the opposite side of the negotiation table? Thank you. Uh, well, um, the truth is that um, I think that it's an idea that people have talked about maybe in our government. Uh, I'm not sure because this hasn't been out there that long. Uh, and I did have a religious advisor, Bob Seipel, who was an ambassador that uh, partially there was legislation that said that this needed to exist. There's a religious commission uh, that a number of, of people, uh, not just ordained people, but uh, others that participate more in talking about foreign policy. But I have not seen uh, much. I have seen the following things, which I think is very interesting, is there are more and more attempts by a variety of religious leaders on their own to begin to look at ways that they can be helpful. And this Imam Faisal that I talked about is uh, very involved in something he calls the Cordoba process, named after the city in Spain where Muslims, Christians, and Jews actually did live and work together. And um, then the Secretary General has created a high-level commission uh, to deal with religious issues that is co-chaired by Turkey and Spain. So there are things like that. Now I have to say, it's interesting, I have created a group of former foreign ministers, uh, which grows by virtue of what it is, and we call ourselves the X-Men's, Madeline and the X-Men's. Uh, <laughs> and we just met two weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about various issues, and I thought I'd try this out of them. And I said, what would you think if we really had some religious leaders meet with us? They looked at me as if I'd lost my mind. Mm. So I think that this is not something that is uh, going to be wildly accepted uh, because it's so different from what people think uh, solving international relations is about. I mean, most people are into where I had been, which is complicated enough, leave God out of it. Uh, but I do think that uh, many European leaders need to begin to understand this because I have a chapter in my book about Islam in the West, which is primarily about what's happening in Europe, uh, and that people need to have a better understanding 
of what is going on. One of the ideas that comes out of my book comes from the Grand Mufti of Sarajevo, uh, Savage, who ha thinks that there should be a new social contract in Europe, which would show that the Muslims who live in Europe, who have emigrated there, need to understand that they're part of national countries and of Europe, and the Europeans need to understand that Islam has added a great deal to their culture, and that we need to move into a Judeo-Christian Islamic um, theory and concepts. But I, this is not out there. I, I, you know, first of all, I do think there are going to be a lot of people who will continue to say that I've lost my mind. Uh, and that it will take a while for people to see this as a useful, practical tool, which I don't wish to denigrate religion, but as a tool of trying to solve problems. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you to the two of you for an illuminating conversation. Uh, Madam Secretary, one of the things that you've pointed out elsewhere is that in the past quarter century, one of the largest changes in foreign affairs is the role of non-state actors in destabilizing global peace and security processes. Uh, and we can maybe almost say that there is a sector of civil society emerging that we could call religious totalitarians. And they speak in Hebrew, and they speak in Arabic, and they speak in Greek, and they speak in Sinhalese, and Hindi, and in English. One of the things that it's, uh, President Thistlethwaite and others are involved in is this other sector that's fledgling, but starting to get off the ground, which could be called religious cooperation. And I'm wondering what hope you see for that civil society sector, religious cooperation, uh, how you might see it working with the state. And um, let's pretend that instead of advising uh, a president, you were advising the leader of the MacArthur Foundation or the Ford Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation, people who make investments in civil society. What would you tell them about the role that civil society religious cooperation actors can play in the 21st century? Well, I, I think... Uh Again, I think that's a very important aspect of this that has to be looked at more carefully, that we are unclear yet about how it integrates with our way of thinking. We have thought in international relations for a long time, primarily with the concept of nation states. Um, that has been it since 1648, and uh, diplomatic relations are carried on between nation states, and uh, you try to figure out how you can uh, affect change through nation states. Um, I teach a course on the National Security Toolbox, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some other country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools that you have? And, but they're all primarily directed at putting pressure on leaders in order to have them change their mind, and whether it's diplomacy, bilateral or multilateral, or economic carrots, trade and aid, or sticks, which are uh, sanctions or embargoes, or the threat of the use of force, or the use of force, that's it. Uh, but the question is, to what extent publics can affect change through civil society, and what do you do about the non-state actors? The non-state actors are very hard to affect because they do not control territory, and it's very hard to figure out where you put the pressure point on them to change their behavior. Um, so those are kinds of the, the issues that are out there that make international relations very difficult at this point. There is no question that non-governmental organizations are playing a greater and greater role uh, in uh, getting change in other countries' 
societies and also in the way that the international system works. The problem I see with non-governmental organizations is that they are not all accountable to anybody. Uh, and every other part, you at least talk about accountability, but there are certain groups that you really don't know what they're doing. Uh, and they also are uncoordinated. To me, the hardest part of non-governmental organization is their lack of coordination. So that you would really find that people go into countries to give assistance and they're duplicating each other or uh, being doing things that contradict each other. So that's another part of the scene. But I do think that uh, a religious cooperation at the civil society level is very important because it can add another layer uh, of understanding among people, which is after all what this is all about. So I would actually urge foundations uh, to try to figure out how to help in terms of getting more um, support into civil society issues in order, because we don't fully understand what the process is in the way that people are relating to each other now. It's very different. Uh, it's different because there are questions about the nation state and the non-state actor, and then there are all the questions about information technology. Uh, how it is that people get their information, there's huge amounts of information out there, uh, which uh, is coming in to many people undistilled and creating expectations uh, and various things that we are not capable of dealing with, and therefore whatever kinds of cooperative activities can be put into place, I think are important, and definitely religious cooperation would add uh, very much the kind of thing that I'm saying, and then would provide a, um, a resonance if you got higher level religious leaders to be part of negotiations, because then they would have a group to connect with in order to get some results and validation. Good idea. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The last was Dr. Ibu Patel, who interfaith health, uh, interfaith youth corps, but also a CTS faculty member, and also yeah. mentioned in my book uh, as somebody who's doing this kind of thing because we met at um, President Clinton's global um, initiative, where in fact, and I think this is one of the points that came out of it is that um, uh, President Clinton was looking at uh, four areas where there could be new initiatives, and that was in religion, uh, in governance, in poverty, and environment. But um, if you could look it up in the book, you're in there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Rob, were you going to ask your question? One CTS student needs to ask yes, a question. Let's, let's Come on. Come on. All right, you will bet got one CTS yes. student ask yes, a question here, and then yes. we're going to sign the books. Okay. Yeah. Don't be shy. Come on. Now there's even more pressure to sound yeah. smart. <laughs> um, greetings. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate the idea of using religious principles as a tool uh, for making important uh, political decisions and foreign policy decisions to inform the way that we uh, interact with the world and, uh, and the way that we um, examine our own uh, might. And I would contrast that um, with the idea that I see in the, tossed around in the Bush administration that rather than religion, uh, rather than um, religion being a tool of us, um, that we 
our country is a tool of God. Therefore, everything that we are doing is God's will. So that's a contrast that I see. I wonder if that is your um, intended contradiction or if it is perhaps possible to see the might that we have as a tool of the Almighty in a way that is different than the understanding thrown around by uh, President Bush. Is that clear? Well, well, you're right. I, I think that um, the way I would see it is that we can be a tool of the Almighty rather than thinking that uh, God is on our side. That, I think, is a very different concept. And whether you take what is in the, Old Test in the New Testament or Spider-Man, to whom much is given, much is expected, uh, I think is a way of saying that, in fact, because we are so mighty that we have certain obligations whereby we then are part of God's plan to try to improve the world uh, and to use the liberty that we have uh, in order to improve people's lives. That is different, I think, than deciding that everything we do uh, is uh, what, that God is on our side. And that's the difference in saying that we should be on God's side versus God being on our side, and that our might and our power and our richness should be used on behalf of the kind of good works uh, that I believe God expects of us. So does that, it's a yeah, lot of Yeah, that's kind of verbiage. what I thought you'd say, but I was just Pardon? wanted to check. <laughs> it's not? Yeah. yeah. Excuse me? Yeah. That does answer my question. Okay. I, to keep faith with our time, Madam Secretary, thank you very much. Thank you.